Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fabulous episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ West. I'm Bridget Keyes. And we are coming to you this week to talk about armed response. So in this episode, Jessica is, of course en route to the south for this you know several times already this season and it happens that she fractures her ankle uh, at the airport and then becomes involved with solving the murder of a doctor who it turns out has been murdered by two of the other doctors on staff who have then tried to pin it on a nurse and what did you think of this episode bridget well, um, I I don't like this episode. Um, I've never liked it. But I think if we frame it within a context of TV history and we think about how it's clearly knocking off Dallas, mm-hmm. uh, then it becomes a lot more fun, right? Mm-hmm. I thought there was something vaguely familiar about that milieu, especially because there's a scene where we have the various doctors at this party, this elaborate sort of to-do where all the other doctors are gathered. So I think that's definitely the intertext that we're looking at here. And I hadn't thought about that until you just said that just now. Well, it's not so much the party, but I mean, the opening sequence is Porter, the lawyer in his limo in his 40-gallon hat, Mm. um, talking big business on his car phone. Meanwhile, we see like sweeping views of the landscape. That's straight out of Dallas. Um, We also have lots of shots later in the episode where we sort of, we like long shots panning up skyscrapers to remind us that Dallas is like a really big metropolitan area Mm. that's also lifted from Dallas. And then the music too. I mean, we've seen in a couple of episodes now that Murder, She Wrote really has fun sort of changing the score mm-hmm. um, to fit the, the sort of tone of different episodes. And in this one, it's 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 like as close as we can get to the Dallas theme song without being sued for copyright infringement, <laughs> right? Right. So w- what then is, do you think is the point, is it just like the, the pleasure of the intertext or what, like what's the motivation for this like slight homage to Dallas, do you think? Well, Dallas is the number one show in the world at this point. Um, and so I think it's it's a way of um, attracting those fans and referencing its fame and familiarity. Mm-hmm. And then I think the fun is that Dallas and um, you know it's it's uh, it's knockoff dynasty, mm-hmm. and then there they have uh, there's later successions, right? Knott's Landing is a spinoff of Dallas, and then we get Falcon Crest and a bunch of others that are these. Um, they're, we call them serial narratives. So the story doesn't necessarily cap off at the end of an episode the way that it does in Murder, She Wrote. And these primetime serials are all about rich people and the fabulousness of their lives and sort of the glorious excesses of the 1980s. And as you and I have talked about a lot, um, Murder, She Wrote really actively sort of works against that view of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's just a lot of fun to be had in the fact that Jessica is planted into this world and she's mm-hmm. really resistant to it, right? She's wealthy, and she's not like these people. She doesn't occupy her time with fake maladies, you know, and trivial concerns and driving in limos. And when she does have 
wealth and money. She uses it for good. Like in this episode, we see Mm -hmm. her like, I'm going to hire the lawyer to get the nurse out of jail, you know. So there's Mm -hmm. a really fun contrast between the two. So I think it is intertext, as you say, and I think it would have been culturally evident immediately to audiences at the time. But I think it's also a sly critique, right? Like, why are those Mm -hmm. series so successful when we have someone like Jessica, who's a really great human, who shows us another way to be rich and also, like, still ethical? Right. And there's, as you say, there's like several moments there because she's not in a hospital per se. She's like in a, like, I don't know. I mean, it, it is a hospital. It's like a private care facility. Yeah. So like, and there's several like sly suggestions among, certainly among the staff, that there's something more than a little ridiculous about the idea that these wealthy people can just go to this private, essentially what's a private hospital just because they have enough money. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the patience is barney ogden who says he's paying a thousand dollars a day but nothing's actually wrong with him right he's only there because he has no family he's just lonely yeah it's like like, it's like club med i guess (laughs) you know for lack of a for lack of a better comparison so just curious like why i mean i have my reasons for why i found this episode to be annoying Uh a strange one and a little bit but well i'll I'll go first and then i'll ask you like why you perhaps found it to be kind of cloying i found the overwrought uh accents to be borderline camp Mm. but not in like a good way like especially as i you know i referenced the dinner party earlier at the the wealthy doctor's house and they're all just so exaggerated like i it was difficult for me to not slip into just outright laughter like it's obviously we mm-hmm. had the we had the earlier episode of dog's life for which was also in the south but there at least the accents didn't feel quite this caricatured like this just felt like people being like how much can i lean into the southernness of this and it begins of course with you know with porter it makes sense because he's that kind of like larger than life lawyer figure uh, not a distant cousin of matlock perhaps but the rest of them, I was just like, what on earth is happening at this party? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I made the same note, like, everyone at this party is a caricature, something I literally wrote down, right? It's, they're not real people at all. They're stock types of what the rest of us think of wealthy Texans. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And I think that's a really good point. And the other intertext that I was thinking of, at least in terms of uh, Jessica being trapped in a hospital is it kind of evocative of some of the mur- of the Miss Marple novels where Miss Marple's also like laid up because of an injury or yeah. some other kind of thing going on and she has to sort of solve things in absentia so I think that was a nice little touch a little grace note if you will yeah and we'll see that trope come back in some later episodes um, like especially the one I love where she's stuck in bed and she hears a murder through a cross telephone wire which is the episode I thought we were going to watch this week but of course that's later in the series Oh, yes, that's a good one. I think the whole idea that she's stuck in this hospital, though, it's, I mean, it's so ridiculous. Like, so the lawyer is a shyster, and he's just, like, he's just really litigious. And so she gets knocked down at the airport, um, like TJ said, and he takes her to this private hospital because it's more expensive. uh, And they're like, oh, you you broke a metatarsal. That, so a toe. She's a broken toe, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then they're like, well, we're going to have to put you in a walking cast. Already I'm like, why are we wearing a cast up to the knee with a broken toe? This is weird. And then Mm -hmm. uh, we should keep you overnight for observation. Like, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. Especially, like, in a United States that has a for-profit healthcare industry where people have, like, surgery and then are literally, like, an hour later told to go home, you know? Like, this is oh, you broke your toe? 
We'll have to keep you all week. I mean, I broke my toe when I was like four and was like set home without, I, I, I did not have a cast. I think they wrapped my toes up. No, people don't usually wear casts, I mean, no. I, yeah, the whole, that whole thing was just quasi ridiculous. And then, of course, so, you know, it gives her the excuse of being in this hospital to sort of witness the fight between the two doctors who ultimately are the ones scheming to kill, you know, they're faking this rivalry so they can kill the guy, their boss. Um, but otherwise, it's it's sort of curious, like, what what's the impetus for having her trapped in a mm-hmm. hospital for this narrative, right. you know? I mean, I guess maybe it's like one of those, as we've observed before, like, there's you have 24 episodes or so in a season. Not every episode. Yeah, not every episode is going to be a knocked out of the park, which I think is is certainly the case here. But maybe we can talk then a little bit about the. Well, we always talk about the guest stars. I mean, there aren't any sort of like huge names this episode, although there are a couple of Golden Girls alum or who would go on to be Golden Girls alums around this exact same time, actually, because the guy who plays um, the lawyer plays one of Blanche's soon-to-be fiancés, which happens a lot in the first season. Why does Blanche get engaged so much? That's they a, all do. That's a good I mean, question. I just thought growing up that, like, people just get proposed to <laughs> by surprise all the time. Yeah. And that comes from watching the Golden Girls. Yeah. And you flip through relationship to relationship, which I guess is not all that inaccurate sometimes. <laughs> but I, I don't know. So I guess oh, the one person I did appreciate was the woman who was, like, in the wheelchair, the sort of daft old lady like Mm -hmm. that character i appreciated for two reasons one just because it's you know an outlandishly entertaining performance but she also kind of reminds me of my my uh, paternal grandmother like who was not southern but had that similar kind of uh ornery i guess would be the 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 descriptor that i would use well uh, yeah she's fun um and you know i i just just felt like there were lots of red herrings in this episode i agree because um you know her name ultimately is sadie sadie is a very southern name okay you need to get off the southern things texas is not the south the south is not texas they're very different excuse me i this it is set this is really important this this is texas not the south with the breakfast scene, right? When the nurse is like, oh, you're not allowed to have coffee anymore because the doctor thought you were too active. Mm-hmm. I thought that meant that she was like overhearing misdeeds that were happening in the hospital or she'd witnessed something. And so they're trying to like, you know, basically sedate her from seeing anything and revealing what she knows. And not at all. It had nothing to do with that at all. No, they prescribe her carrot juice, apparently. Literally, she's just consuming too much caffeine. Yeah. So that was a red herring. Another one was like Jessica's talking to, I guess maybe it was Dr. Ellison, who said, she's like, oh, you sound mm. like you're from Chicago because of your accent. Oh, right. Like, first of all, he does not have a Chicago accent. He has like Ohio standard English. Well, that was my thought too. But, I was like... um, he says, I'm from the south side, several hundred miles away. And I was like, aha, this must be a clue because the south side is not 100 miles away from the north side of Chicago. Right, which of course, obviously, he's you know, even if he were speaking metaphorically, which clearly he is, but it's like there's, that's not really go anywhere. Like there's n- that's not really developed as a plot point. It's just like why is this? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So I just kept thinking things were clues, and they really never went anywhere. Right. And also, as someone who spent like most of my all of my early adult life uh, was in Chicago. I mean, I lived in Chicago for like 20 years. Right. It just, it really upset me that he thought the South Side was several hundred miles away. Right. Or that, you know, he didn't actually speak with a Chicago accent. Even I know that. And I'm like, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I was just like, right. what? Like, this is a Chicago. 
I was I was so curious. Like, does Jessica think she sounds like she's from Maine? Because to me, it sounds like they have the exact same accent. Well, I mean, yeah. There's only a few. Only very rarely does Jessica sound like a New Englander. Like, very seldom do I detect even like a, even yeah. the fake New England accent that Angela Lansbury would have to adopt. Yep. A, a, a vowel here and there, perhaps, but as a rule, no, she doesn't really sound like you know a, you know someone who would be from Maine. From, from a small town in Maine where accents tend to be stronger. Yeah, no, she mostly, it's uh, like, again, like Ohio mm-hmm. Standard, I think, with her Britishisms mm-hmm. slip in from time to time. And of course, there's also like one of the nurses that's also been having an affair with the murder victim, which also goes nowhere and is just sort of like thrown out there. It's just right? like... This is such a weird episode. It is. I mean, it's just like they, they sort of threw all the classic elements of a murder show episode into a blender and were like, well... Here's what we've got. So, <laughs> this was the mo- murder she wrote grab bag, the potpourri. Yeah, episode. and of course, there's. I mean, there is one brilliant line, and it's actually prefaced in the trailer, like that comes before the episode, the tonight on murder she wrote thing, um, where she's like, "Well, you wouldn't frame someone with a wrong gun." Like that's a, a brilliant line. So explain that for people who haven't seen the episode recently. Okay, so as part of the scheme from the two doctors to like pin the the crime on the nurse, they hide her their the gun in question in her locker, which is then discovered, and then the policeman finds it, and then she, you know and that's when Jessica says, "Well, they wouldn't frame someone with the wrong gun." Yeah, because the two doctors are framing Jenny, the nice nurse. The right, which, nurse. I mean, okay, so let's talk a little bit about these two doctors, like, framing, I mean... This is bizarre. Yeah, I mean, their motivation is strange to start with. It, it is, although, you know, really, it's just a copycat of Agatha Christie's They Do It With Mirrors in the end, mm. right? So in They Do It With Mirrors, there's the guy who's a psychiatrist, and his assistant, who turns out to actually be his son, have this big fight... Um, meanwhile, someone is murdered, but obviously they couldn't have done it because everyone heard them fighting. And the same thing happens with mm-hmm. these two doctors. They are in the office. Everyone can hear them arguing. And Jessica figures out that it was a recording and one of them could have slipped out and committed the murder. Right. But well, then they, they false flag by then shooting a gun outside, which then sounds like like confuses the time of the murder. They put his body in the fish pool. Like it's a whole it just seems so they there's a, a shot later after the fight some the other one doctor shoots the guy the other doctor goes back fires a fake shot so the neighbors will hear it to confuse the time of death moves the body to the fish pond because it's heated and it'll delay rigor mortis and confuse the time of death and then sets off the alarm so someone will you know so the police will come and find the body but at that point it'll look like they've been gone for a long time so it couldn't have been them because the party's been over for a really long time kind of clever but it's also it's one of those cases where like as i'm watching it as, as just you know a, a relatively i wouldn't say complacent but i'm willing i'm a credulous viewer like i'm usually willing to take a show at its at face value and not necessarily like probe too deeply as i'm watching it but then after i think back i'm like this makes literally no sense like or this makes you know why all of these it was an overly complicated way for two people to plan a right murder. and then to try to i mean i also just don't, i never quite understand the pre, like the reasoning behind framing somebody else for a murder because it almost never works like <laughs> at least not on tv yeah it's like it always falls apart because of course it is like yeah i mean wouldn't the smart the smart thing is not to like put the gun in someone else's locker the smart thing is like get rid of the gun altogether right Get it somewhere where the police will never find it. Right. Because then, of course, there's no weapon. So it's, you know, it's much that right. much harder to prove who was actually responsible. The other question I had is that, um, so Kenyon is the one who actually kills the guy. Mm-hmm. 
technically, Ellison, all he's responsible for is tampering with the evidence, right? Moving the body. Right. It may be accessory. Maybe being an accessory. Okay, sure. I guess that could be a pretty severe sentence. But it seems to me like I would not sign up for this. Like if you were like, hey, here's a great idea for us to commit a murder. You go out and kill him. And then later I'll move the body. I'd be like, fuck, no, you're going to kill him. And I'll move the body. Like, I'm not going down for being the one who actually pulled the trigger, right? Because that guy's going to get a bigger sentence, isn't he? Yes, exactly. So, again, one of those things that doesn't make a great deal of, like, (laughs) sense. It was also, like, the reason that they were told they'd kill him is because he was going to pick one of them to be his successor. Yes. So they think, well, if we kill him, then he doesn't pick either of us and we can both... How about, like, just letting him live and then we all have our jobs? (laughs) This seems like a no-brainer to me. Yes. I was just like... And, I mean, I I was also just kind of like, wow, these... I mean, because obviously it's played not heavily, but it's not like, you know, it's not like a somber, heavy episode. But what they're doing is pretty monstrous. Like, not just killing the guy, but framing an innocent person who's just a bystander and has, like, nothing to do with all this, but they just want to pin it on her because it's convenient. Like, that's really kind of messed up when you think about it. But there's, I'm sure there's some critique that we could make then of um, how doctors regard nurses, right? And that, oh you know, yeah, she's disposable compared to them. And they needed to, they need to actually take someone's life because their doctoring is so important. And she's like the disposable nurse, right? No, I actually, I mean, I, I know that was kind of like off the cuff, but I think that's actually a really at least implied in the episode Mm. because i mean the episode is is implicating implying of course that this whole rich healthcare thing is broken to start with and corrupt from top to bottom and that's clearly like i think that that's perhaps adding a little layer that is not always obvious right on the surface well yeah and 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 the misogyny right all the doctors in this episode are men Mm -hmm. and all the nurses are women so right and they do treat them as, you know, as, as you say, as ultimately disposable, or at least as someone not even to be acknowledged as being, like, full people. Gross. Which is really messed up when you think about totally it. Totally gross. Which, you know, which, yeah, and I mean, when I was thinking about, like, what I wanted to talk about for this episode, I was like, well, it's not as, like, straightforwardly anti-patriarchal as some of our other episodes. Like, Yeah, where, like, the big rich patriarch gets murdered because he's an asshole. Right. But it is... It's not really that. No, but it is still there, implica- you know, there is still social commentary, uh... Oh, yeah. Subtle, if not, but still nevertheless very prominent. And we can also talk about the fact that it's very much like critiquing 80s litigious culture. Like this is sort of the rise of litigiousness within American society writ large. Something that we... Yeah, the uh, lawyer the, porter is like, well, Jessica can sue the airport. We could get a couple of hundred thousand. He's, he's uh, at the end, we're told that he's actually going to defend the two doctors and possibly cause a possibly sue that for the fact that they were arrested wrongfully i mean it's like and jessica's final line is of course see you in court i mean of course she was called there to start with to to be a witness in a case to start with so um yeah but that that's confusing to me because this lawyer is really litigious and he was supposedly representing the author accused of plagiarism and you would think based on his personality that he would be the one bringing the plagiarism case you would think so but that never goes, that's also another plot thread that never goes anywhere. By the time Jessica gets out of the hospital, we're told the case is settled. So it's all, or dropped or whatever, you know, it never goes anywhere either. It's one of those moments, I mean, for those of us who grew up in the 80s and the 90s, like the sort of rise of lawsuits was all over the news. And I'm sure, so that's one of those moments I was like, okay, yeah, I can see where, mm-hmm. we're, where this is drawing from and where it's sort of getting some of its energy from that particular phenomenon. 
The other, I think, critique of um, of 80s culture and especially the excesses is the cop, uh, Ray, who tells us that he's from like a rougher neighborhood, working class neighborhood, and he's just gotten this job in this area, which is very affluent. And he actually asks Jessica for help because he says he, does, he doesn't really know how to deal with people like this, like rich, fancy uh-huh. people, he says. Yeah, I like that. I wanted to, that's, that was one of the other things that I I did genuinely enjoy about the episode was that, you know, he comes to Jessica in a moment of vulnerability, which we don't always see from the law enforcement field. I mean, we do see it sometimes, but not rarely someone who's just like, I don't know what I'm doing. I need your help, which I thought was kind of a nice change of pace a little bit from what we usually see. Yeah, it was really sweet. It's a little bit curious that there's no other cops that he could ask for help, but (laughs) that's fine. It's Murder, She Wrote. He asked Jessica. Um, And I think it's really cute that they have such a great relationship that this moment when they have this explosive fight in the office Mm -hmm. that everyone is listening to where she's yelling at him for fouling up the investigation and and accusing the wrong person and being stupid. It's like, what is happening? Like, these two, this is not Jessica's behavior. These two get along. And that's when we realize what they're doing is reenacting how the two doctors did the crime to mm-hmm. prove to the doctors that they figured it out. Right. Which, speaking of that, not to, to belabor this point, but this that whole explanation about the, the staged argument raises so many questions. Like, how far is the doctor's house from the hospital? Like Five minutes. They did say that. Okay, so... That's they had to add that as a line because it's so it's ridiculous. Just like, <laughs> it's just like <sighs> I just slipped out. It's only five minutes away. He said that. Okay, I, I, I'm glad you were paying attention because I I did miss that. I was just like, what? Like, what on earth is? Yeah, I don't know. The whole thing just seems a little bit out there. Uh huh. That's not how I would plan a murder. That's for sure. Exactly. Maybe, maybe that's the thing. Like, you know, usually people watch crime-solving shows to learn how to do a murder. Maybe murder she wrote. No, like... they don't. What the hell? <laughs> or that's the, the hell joke, kind of viewer say. are you? <laughs> well, maybe that's the joke. I should say. But maybe it's a good example of how not to do it. Murder she wrote is a good blueprint how not to do a murder. Let's well, I, I think the thing about murder she wrote, and I often feel this way about Agatha Christie too, for what it's worth. I think that they write for the the detective to find the puzzle so the puzzle can should be necessarily and for the reader or the viewer really complicated and convoluted because then it's the fun of the puzzle right Mm -hmm. but that's not writing from the point of view of the criminal like if you actually think through what's been planned from the criminal's point of view it makes no sense like why on earth would that be how you plan a murder that's the craziest most ridiculous you know contingent way of doing it but it works from mm-hmm. the point of view of the detective or the sleuth and the viewer, or the reader, you know, because it working backwards, we have like lots of crazy convoluted twists and turns. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's a very apt explanation for how these kinds of fictions work and why they don't necessarily map onto how actual murders take place in the real world. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. So. So what else do we want to talk about in this episode? What else stood out to you? What else stood out to me? What else stood out to me? It's kind of everything I made notes about, Tej, to be honest. I don't really, it's not really my favorite. I will say, though, you know, the episode is called Armed Response, which uh, if you forget which episode it is, they neatly give us a shot of a security company's logo that says Armed Response in the middle of the episode so that you remember the title. Well, that's good anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've talked on this show a little bit previously. I mean, because we're now approaching the end of the season. Like, we've got only, like, one or two episodes left before we get to the end. And so, 
it does feel like a filler episode that there's not a lot of like it's not a weighty episode it's not one that it's not even like fun in the way a dog's life is fun because at least with a dog's life we had big stars to sort of ground our enjoyment at least for me like as a viewer like we had you know the red graves we had the forest tuckers here it's just kind of like okay this is an entertaining episode as far as it goes but there's just not a lot of weight or substance to it that really gives it a heft that some of the other even some of the other sort of like stranger episodes have like at least with we're off to kill the wizard we could be like this makes no sense and we could try to figure out the phone changing stuff but here there's not even that it's just kind of a relatively cut and dry scenario i disagree with everything you just said good that's what i was hoping for but I also feel like uh, it is definitely racing toward the end of season one and everybody's a little burnt out. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like that as an episode. So, yeah, yeah. I and mean, there's just, it's fine, I guess, is what we're getting at. <laughs> <laughs> there's no murder she wrote episode that isn't fine, even the ones arguably that don't have Jessica. I think think there's fun in this episode. The moments where people are interacting and being like super Texan are just, they're campy and it's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. I know that you felt like it got a little dry, a little, not dry, but stale after a while and a little too much. But I think that we're supposed to see this as, um, I think Murder, She Wrote, you know, they're all dramas because people die Mm -hmm. and we're solving the murder. But there's episodes that skew more toward comedy and episodes that skew more toward melodrama and really serious, Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. Uh, And this is, I think, we're supposed to see this as one of the lighter, more comedic episodes because of all the jokes about Texas, basically. No, I like that. I think that's that's fair. I will will concede the point there that that is probably the better way of engaging with the episode. So we got anything else? (laughs) Well, should we wrap this up then? I think so. I think we have uh, exhausted, perhaps. Our our oil well has run dry on this episode. Oh, so. that was good. That was terrible, mm. but also really good. Well, thank you all, uh, as always, for joining us for the uh, Cabot Cove Gazette. So for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I am TJ West. And I'm Bertie Keith. And we will see you all next week. Or pardon me, we'll see y'all next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. <laughs>